Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Lately, I've been going through a bit of a phase, a full moon phase to be exact, pun intended. I've been on a major full moon features kick lately, is my point. It has been such a lovely and bizarre experience thus far. It started a couple of months back when I knew I would be reviewing Tate Steinsick's Castle Freak. I subscribed to Full Moon streaming service through Amazon Prime so I could watch the original again, and I got in there and I stretched my limbs and looked around. And I realized, I know fuck all about full moon movies. I've, I've done some stupid things. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. Obviously, I am a massive fan of Dr. Mordred. I love Castle Freak, and I'm more familiar with Charles Band via Empire International Pictures, his earlier production company through which a handful of some of my favorite movies were produced, like From Beyond and Intruder. But when it comes to actual full moon features released from 1989 onward, there are so many titles in this catalog that I have either never seen or never even heard of. Of course, I was aware of the Puppet Master series, but I had never actually sat down and watched any of the films in it, and I feel like this just won't stand. I feel that I can no longer call myself a fanatic of our beloved genre until I have educated myself. So I have stepped out into the light of the full moon. I don't know why people listen to my podcast. And I've begun my education with three films, Bad Channels, Demonic Toys, and of course, Puppet Master. Now, I didn't watch these films in the order in which they were released, so I'll be reviewing them in the order in which I saw them, which means Puppet Master comes last. Also, for those of you out there who are much better versed in these franchises than I am, uh, this may be a slightly frustrating listen for you, because I'm brand new to these stories, and I have been actively trying not to spoil things for myself. Before I can dive into them, I have a couple of quick points of interest I'd like to touch down on. Firstly, there's a new fan film in the works that I am so excited about, so naturally, I need you guys to be excited with me. The following film is an account of a tragedy that transpired in an isolated property. For all who experienced it, an ordinary day became a nightmare. Entitled The Sawyer Massacre, this new feature-length fan film, written and directed by Steve Merlot, will act as a non-canonical prequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The full trailer and Indiegogo campaign for the film dropped yesterday, and I have watched this trailer so many times. There's one moment in particular, about a minute or so in, where their final girl, Allison, is sitting at what I suspect is the Sawyer's dinner table, and we get a shot of her being fondled by Leatherface, but we just see his midsection. The imagery there is simply stunning, and the performances from the actors seem completely on point. The character of Leatherface will be portrayed in this film by a man named Scotty Parkin, and dude, I know I've only seen a little bit of what you've done, but so far I love it. I have a lot more that I would love to comment on and explore regarding this film. But for now, if you haven't checked out the trailer or their crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo, please 
a go-go. Just give yourself a treat because the Sawyer Massacre looks like it's going to be awesome. For a little recommended reading, over at the Horror News Network, Jane Nightshade brings us the 10 best horror films of John Carradine, an excellent list which includes The Howling, Swamp Water, and The Secret of Nim, which was one of my absolute favorite films growing up, and it made me so happy to see it regarded as a horror film. Nightshade said, The Secret of Nim isn't strictly a horror movie, but it has terrified several generations of kids with its realistically depicted violence violence, and spooky atmosphere. Damn right it terrified me, especially Carradine's character, the Great Owl, which was at once one of the most adorable and horrifying things I ever encountered on TV as a kid. I'm pretty sure that owl helped make me the kind of film fan I am today, actually. <laughs> Lastly, over at Bloody Disgusting, as part of one of my favorite ongoing editorial series, Phantom Limbs, Jason Jenkins talks with George Mihalka about The Return of the Minor, the My Bloody Valentine sequel that never was, as well as a different sequel to the film, potentially entitled Valentine Wakes, which, among other things, would see the return of some of the original cast members, and I just, reading this, I feel like a kid in a hypothetical candy store. In that discussion, Mihalka talks about how producing Producer John Dunning had wanted to create a sequel for years, but was intent on changing the formula to something a little trendier, you know, pretty teenagers getting chopped up. To which Mihalka said, The reason My Bloody Valentine, after all these years, is still the iconic movie that it is, is that it didn't follow any trends. It was about working class people and their problems in life, and then this shit happens at the same time. That was what excited me about it, and that's what would excite me about doing a sequel, carrying on in that tradition. Several different passes at a sequel were made prior to John Dunning's death, and then the remake happened and all talks of a sequel were stopped. Whether Mihalka's plans for Valentine Wakes come to fruition or not, it is so great to get to read his stories of the development of a My Bloody Valentine sequel and his affectionate thoughts on the fans. I highly recommend checking that article out. All right, that's all I really got for tonight. I mean, there are other things happening. We're getting a Silent Night, Deadly Night reboot. Pet Cemetery is getting a prequel. It's just none of these things interest me, so... Moving on. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen Bad Channels, Demonic Toys, or Puppet Master, proceed with caution, because I will be spoiling some, if not all, of these films for you. All right, to kick things off, we have Bad Channels, directed by Ted Nicolau, who also directed Terror Vision, which will likely come as no surprise to anyone who has seen both it and this film. Written by Jackson Barr and based on an original idea by Charles Band, this film was released in June of 1992. I always knew that the first place that visitors from another planet would want to hit when they finally got to Earth would be... Bad Channels tells the story of shock jock Dangerous Dan O'Dare, who is brought in to help promote the new nationwide broadcast of Small Town Pahuda's All Polka radio station. Sadly, the station has bigger problems as it becomes prey to two aliens who use Dan's voice to lure beautiful female listeners into vivid music video hallucinations. Once they've taken the bait, the aliens abduct the women, shrink them down to a pint-sized state, and store them in little glass jars. Dan is trapped on the airwaves trying desperately 
to warn the townsfolk not to listen, but they all naturally think it's just one of his many gimmicks. So he fights from the inside to figure out how to combat this threat. While Dan is saving the world inside the station, local newswoman Lisa is working hard to help convince the town outside that the invasion isn't a joke, as she initially saw the aliens landing and is the only person who believes Dan. Ultimately, Dan discovers the aliens can be defeated by everyday household disinfectant, and he saves the day. This is a very high-energy, low-rent sci-fi comedy that's about 40% music video and... I fucking love it. What I enjoy most about this film, and not to overlook its story, which I do find very entertaining, but what I like most is how effortlessly it takes me back in time. As a proud member of the MTV generation, this feels distinctly like something I would have watched over and over again when I was like 12 or 13 years old. I keep expecting it to be periodically interrupted by commercials for Jenkos or the real world or something. And I'm genuinely surprised that I don't remember this playing on MTV when I was a kid. I mean, I imagine it must have, right? If anyone out there listening remembers this airing on MTV, please tell me because I am deeply curious. Especially because when I was watching this for the first time, I'm looking at the character of Lisa. I'm listening to her talk. And I'm like, I know this actress from somewhere. Where do I know her? Only to find that Lisa is played by none other than Martha Quinn, one of the very first MTV VJs I ever remember watching. We are outside the modest studios of radio station KDUL, just about the last place you'd expect to find America's most controversial rock and roll disc jockey. It's also a movie about aliens invading Earth, and yet stuffy corporate network TV is kind of the real bad guy, which is just such a 90s attitude to have. So yeah, this movie puts me in full nostalgia mode. And I'm not the only one. In a review of the film back in 2016, Ken Wine of Attack from Planet B wrote, Whether you love or hate bad channels will depend entirely on whether or not you soaked up MTV back in the 1980s and 1990s. Keep in mind that the film is intended as a spoof on both the science fiction genre and the MTV generation. I was guaranteed to love this film going in. Uh, it's also hard for me because of its musically inclined 90s attitudinal nature to talk about this movie without focusing most of my energy on the music segments. As I mentioned earlier, the aliens use Dan's voice to hypnotize his listeners, then put them into trance-like states, during which time they hallucinate that they are the stars of music videos. And while the big musical seller for the film is its original soundtrack by Blue Oyster Cult, each music video segment features a song from a different alternative rock or heavy metal band. One of the videos is a shameless ripoff of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, and another hosts a hair metal concert in a Greasy Spoon Diner. But I think my favorite video segment would be the song Manic Depresso by Psychotic Symphony, which sees a simple hospital turned into a cartoonish asylum of horrors, and the band just has such a fun presence. They sound and feel a little bit like Oingo Boingo meets Guar, but less elaborate and not nearly as grotesque as the latter. Although now that I think about it, Guar should totally have been in this movie. Guar, where were you in 1992? I know you were doing SFW in 94 and then Empire Records like a couple years later. Somebody get Guar on the phone. <laughs> I have questions for them. Other bands performing in this film include DMT, Joker, who also did music for Demonic Toys, and the Ukuleleans, which is just an amazing amazing name. The Ukuleleans provided the polka music for the film, and I've looked them up, and while the name has been used a few times over the decades, this specific outfit seems to have only existed for the purposes of playing polka in bad channels. And 
further research revealed to me that at least one of the polka songs recorded under this name was done, in fact, by Psychotic Symphony. Although most of the music is, is not that great, I would say this film is worth watching for the music videos woven throughout. But that isn't the only thing I enjoy about it. I'm also very fond of Martha Quinn's performance as Lisa and Paul Hip as Dan O'Dare. I think Hip especially did a great job of just laying into the role. He's so flustered and exhausted, and I get a huge kick out of most of his lines. Come on, people. Lisa, what's her face is here for my big interview, and the way these chains are wrapped between my legs is making her microphone throb. I'm also just a complete sucker for any story revolving around radio DJs. Also, Aaron Lustig, who plays station owner Vernon Locknut, is adorable, as is Daryl Strauss, who plays Bunny, the incredibly out-of-place princess-voiced supermodel playing the symbols for the high school band for some reason. Most of the actors in this film add such a likability to the characters, and you can tell that they're just, they're having fun, which, as I'm sure those of you who've been with me for a while have gathered, is really the number one thing I look for in my movies. I'm also also a big fan of how the film goes back and forth between showing us regular shots and then shots framed through a television screen. I'm sure there's a technical term for that, but I don't know what it is. The SFX, however, are my least favorite of these three films, and the designs of the aliens leave a lot to be desired. The smaller, more robotic-looking alien, whose name I think is Cosmo, based on what I learned on Wikipedia, they don't ever actually call the aliens by name, but I'm pretty sure that alien's name is Cosmo. He looks like a repurposed TikTok from Return to Oz, and the larger one, uh, who I assume is Lump, is just a, a guy with a big lump for a head. It's still fun, but they just scream minimum effort, which is to be expected if you look at this as just a spoof on science fiction. I didn't go into it expecting, like, amazing practical effects. <laughs> One of the few horrors in this film is this slimy green fungusy stuff that the victims of the aliens get all over them, and it looks like Play-Doh, like hardened Play-Doh, occasionally coated in slime. The set design, however, as the aliens gradually take over the studio, is a lot of fun and utilizes that Play-Doh goop pretty well. I also enjoy the effect of the women being shrunk, although it doesn't really look or feel any different from effects we've seen in the past, like in Attack of the Puppet People from 1958. The movie ends with most of the women being freed from the jars and restored to their original size, as well as Dan O'Dare and Lisa finally releasing some of their sexual tension by way of hugs and a mutual fuck you to the network for which Lisa was working. There's also a post-credit sequence featuring Tom Thomerson, aka Dollman, which lays the groundwork for this film's kind of secret the crossover film Dollman vs. Demonic Toys. So this isn't a horror movie. Not really. There are some horror elements, but I think that Wine really nailed it when he said it's, it's just a spoof on sci-fi and on the MTV generation. Also, Bad Channels features what is perhaps the single greatest scream I have ever heard in a movie. <laughs> makes me cry. Actual tears. <laughs> Is it a great movie? No, but fuck it, man. I had a blast watching Bad Channels, and I do recommend it if you're in the mood for something quick, dirty, that oozes that signature goofy angst of the early 90s. If you go into this expecting it to be exactly what it is, I don't think you'll be disappointed. <laughs> Move.
moving on from bad channels to demonic toys. Of the three films I'm talking about today, this is the one that I watched the most. I think I watched this movie like 10 times in one week. I absolutely adore it. Directed by Peter Manoogian and written by David fucking Goyer, who wrote Dark fucking city, my favorite movie ever fucking made. I'm sorry, but seriously, this guy wrote my favorite movie. And I can't believe I never realized he also wrote Demonic Toys, which does account for, in my opinion, the script being kind of awesome at times and feeling like it's a little bit better than it should be. <laughs> this film was also based on an original idea by Charles Band and released in 1992. Let me slip into something a little more comfortable before the fun begins. Demonic Toys tells the story of Judith Gray, an undercover and newly pregnant policewoman whose partner slash baby daddy is killed in an arms bust in the parking lot of a toy warehouse. Because as any arms dealer worth their salt will tell you, the best place to sell guns is the parking lots of toy warehouses. Judith chases her boyfriend's killers into the warehouse, where one of them bleeds on a strange light on the floor, which wakes up a small gang of, you guessed it, demonic toys, who turn out to be kind of like the henchmen of an ancient evil, lucky enough to have had a pregnant woman wander into his life as he's looking for a way to channel his essence into a living body. He sets his sights on Judith's unborn child, and she, along with a fast food delivery driver, a teenage runaway, and a night watchman, fight to survive the toys. This proves especially difficult, however, as these toys are quite hungry for human flesh, and the evil at the heart of it all is really laying it on thick with some vivid hallucinations for Judith. It occurs to me that all of the movies I'm talking about today involve vivid hallucinations. <laughs> Apparently that's a full moon thing. I need to write that down in my notes. Will this be on the test? The story here is much less complicated than that of Puppet Master and even that of Bad Channels, honestly. It's a very simple story. What more does a person need than cuddly children's toys being possessed by demonic energy and the source of that energy trying to impregnate a woman with himself? And in a big step up from Bad Channels, we have some playfully brutal kills, which always make makes me happy. If you give me the option to watch someone get their fingers bitten off by a killer teddy bear or not watch someone get their fingers bitten off by a killer teddy bear, I'm, I'm gonna watch that shit. In addition to the fact that this is an actual horror movie, two other advantages this film has over bad channels are the designs of its villains and the SFX. Much of these were handled by Magical Media Industries Inc., which was founded by John Carl Buechler, and it's for this reason alone that I recommend anyone and everyone with an appreciation for practical effects watch Demonic Toys. Buechler was regarded by Roger Corman as the best FX guy in the business. He worked on fucking everything from Ghoulies, Troll, and Friday the New Blood, both of which he directed, by the way, Halloween 4, From Beyond, Bride of Reanimator. He was also part of the makeup department for Reanimator and Dolls. And one of his last movies was Hatchet. In short, Buechler was a big deal, and any movie where you can watch his work in action is worth your time. The puppets and the gore aren't the only things worth noting here, though, as this film also features this, like, angelic toy soldier, who sort of helps keep Judith's spirits up and ultimately comes to life to help defeat the demon. Um, and most of what we see of him is stop motion. This was done in part by David Allen, who also did stop motion for Alex Winters Freaked in 1993. I have a feeling one of my listeners will be really interested in that connection. I still haven't seen Freaked, but I've been told that I absolutely must and I will. Alan also did the stop motion for Dr. Mordred, which made me so happy as I love the animation in that movie. I raved about it for I don't even know how long after I first saw it. So 
Yeah, I like David Allen. The toys in this film do have quite a bit more personality than both the aliens in Bad Channels and even the puppets in the first Puppet Master, which kind of surprised me. I really like both Grizzly Bear and Jack Attack a lot, the former being on a kind of permanent feeding frenzy, uh, and the latter being this unsettling fusion of Creepy Clown and Rattlesnake, which is weird and awesome. I have to confess, though, I don't really get what the rest of the fandom sees in Baby Oopsie Daisy. <laughs> Baby Oopsie is popular enough that they're getting their own movie from William Butler, no less, writer and director of The Resonator, which I just watched this afternoon, by the way, and really liked. I'm just, I'm not super excited about Baby Oopsie yet. Maybe I will be once I've seen more of the movies in this franchise, but as yet, Oopsie's limited one-liners and lackluster voice acting leaves me reaching for my Child's Play DVDs. I can walk, I can talk, I can even shit my pants. <gasps> can you shit your pants? If I had to pinpoint my favorite thing about this movie, I think it would have to be Tracy Scoggins. Scoggins is acting her ass off through this entire low-budget movie about killer toys, and I'm talking it's like a Jeffrey Combs level of commitment to the material, and I cannot express how much I appreciate her for that. She was also nearly 40 years old when she made this film, and it satisfies me in a very real way uh, to see any kind of a horror movie where the final girl is around my age. The rest of the cast, Bentley Mitchum as Mark the Delivery Driver, Ellen Dunning as The Runaway, and Peter Shrum as the Night Watchman, they all do a good job, but in my opinion, Scoggins really steals the show. You killed my partner. You're lucky I don't put a bullet in your fucking head and call it self-defense. The second standout performance is that of Daniel Cher Cherney? Cerny? who played the kid, the child form of the demon. I think he did a fantastic job with his facial expressions and body language in tandem with the demon's lines. In a behind-the-scenes feature for Full Moon's Video Zone, Daniel said he was channeling his little brother for his evil performance because his brother was really mean. <laughs> And that, that's fucking adorable. I will say the decision to give the movie's big bad a child form at all does feel a little questionable, as its primary motivation is evolution, which in this case requires sex. While Daniel does a great job mouthing his lines, like, then we can do the nasty, it just leaves a bad taste on the brain. Not to mention, the demon may have had better luck seducing Judith if he'd assumed the form of, like, you know, Richard Grieco. Contrary to other reviews I've read of the film, however, I do enjoy that the spirit of Judith's unborn child manifests itself as a second little boy who helps fight the demon. Yes, it raises so many questions, but it's delightfully weird and does feel appropriate to me given everything leading up to it. Again, I think they could have told this story without kids altogether, but if they had to do it, I think this was a way to go. One other little detail I love about this film before I move on is Charnetsky, the Night Watchman, misused everyday phrases for some reason. He takes sayings like, hold on and keep your pants on, and he like fuses them together and it becomes hold your pants on, or hang tight and stay close become hang close. I don't know why they made him talk like that, but it slays me. Charnetsky does not know how to colloquialism. There's so much more that I want to say about this film. I love it so much, but I'm not doing a deep dive today. These are just first impressions, quick thoughts, so... I'm gonna move on. Overall, Demonic Toys is quirky, goofy, and features some great SFX that keep me glued to the screen from start to finish. I didn't grow up on this movie like a lot of my friends, but it's easy to imagine that if I had, it would have creeped me out and possibly scarred me for life. Somebody wanna tell me what the fuck is going on here? It's the toys. Someone's inside the toys. 
So now we have come to Puppet Master, directed by David Schmoller, written by Schmoller, Kenneth Hall, and Charles Band, released in 1989. This was the ship that launched Full Moon to success, and there are currently 13 films in the franchise, as well as one non-canonical crossover film, tons of comics and lines of toys. Puppet Master is a powerhouse of cult cinema, and I would just like to take this opportunity to apologize to both myself and the entire horror community for waiting until I was 37 years old to sit down and actually watch it. But why? That's the hard part. I don't know why. Again, please bear in mind that my review of this film is of this film only. I've seen none of the others, and from what I understand, there may be certain elements from this first film that make a little more sense as the movies go on. Puppet Master opens with the suicide of a puppeteer slash alchemist named Andre Toulon in 1939. He is played by William Hickey in this one, and he is fabulous. Toulon has discovered an ancient Egyptian secret that allows him to animate lifeless objects, in this case, his puppets. And there are evil German people who want to use this gift. I'm assuming, so they track him down at his hotel room at the endearingly called Bodega Bay Inn. He hides his puppets in the walls of the hotel, then shoots himself just before the men arrive. From there, we move to four gifted psychics decades later as they arrive at the Bodega Bay Inn for the funeral, or more accurately, afterlife party of their colleague and frenemy Neil Gallagher. The psychics all have very distinct personalities and skill sets. We have Dana, jaded and cynical, who's kind of working as a snake oil saleswoman, telling fortunes at a carnival and it's with her that we get this really fun uh, cameo from Barbara Crampton. She and her boyfriend are there having their fortunes read. Yes, sir, you are going to be a rich man. <laughs> oh, maybe I will marry him then. <laughs> And then there are Frank and Carissa, sex-obsessed, kind of clinical in their approach to studying psychic gifts. Think if Peter Venkman had had a girlfriend. And Alex Whitaker, a kindly professor who almost immediately establishes himself as the final boy of the film by being freaking precious. Despite their many differences, they all have one thing in common. They at one point worked with and did not like Neil Gallagher. Gallagher was a despicable person. He was manipulative, money-hungry, rapey, just you name it, Gallagher was probably into it. And the psychics are surprised when they arrive at the inn and are greeted by a sweet, timid woman named Megan, who turns out to have been Gallagher's wife. She takes them to his body, where they confirm that he is in fact dead, and Megan reveals that Gallagher requested to be buried only once the four of them had arrived. It's gradually revealed that Gallagher did commit suicide, but resurrected himself using Toulon's lost methods, recovering and animating his puppets to boot, which he uses to kill his former colleagues. He married Megan for full access to the inn, and spent ages tearing it apart under the guise of reconstruction. He then spent like a year perfecting the animation technique. Somehow, this led him to the conclusion that he could kill and reanimate himself using the same method, which would effectively, or so he believed, make him immortal, which he also intends to do to the psychics. So he's kind of doing them a favor, sort of. There's a lot more to compliment regarding the Puppet Master story, as we are given so many little stories alongside the main plot, all of which make me want to see more of these characters. I would like to know more about Alex's life outside of this situation. I would be happy to see more of Dana in her everyday life. I'd even enjoy a little backstory about Carissa and Frank. You know, how did they meet? How did they discover they could use sex as a way of detecting paranormal energies and how the fuck does that work? I want you to recreate in your mind your wildest sexual fantasy, paying particular attention to the details, all right? 
I'm also a big fan of Alex's recurring dream of Megan dancing with Gallagher and how that pays off with Dana's dog in the end, as well as the attitude with which each character uniquely approaches the mystery of Gallagher's final years. My favorite performances in the film are those of Paul Lamont, who played Alex, and Robin Freights as Megan. I think they have great chemistry and they really keep my sympathy going as Gallagher's sinister plans unfold. There's also a moment in this movie that unlike the previous two films, actually did kind of scare me when one of Alex's nightmares gives him a wake-up fake-out and he discovers the severed heads of his colleagues under the covers at the foot of his bed. That image stayed with me for a while. Make no mistake, the film definitely has its midnight movie moments, mainly revolving around Frank and Carissa, the latter boob-slapping herself as she relives the sexual excursions of old movie stars. Oh my god, Frankie. What? This is a movie star bed. Not now, Carissa. And I cannot accept that Frank would actually mistake a tiny wooden puppet hand for that of his lover. But for the most part, this is such an engaging watch, and I completely understand how it birthed such a rich series. The puppets themselves, while not as overtly frightening or offering up as much personality as the toys in Demonic Toys, at least until the very end, are very fun to look at and unsettling. Especially Leech Woman, a delicate, feminine puppet who vomits leeches out onto her victims. As somebody who has... <laughs> difficulty with vomit. It's the one thing I really don't handle well in movies. Ask me how I'm a trauma fan. I cannot tell you. Leech Woman was a challenge for me to watch, even knowing it was a tiny little puppet and it was leeches coming out of her mouth. It was it was hard to look at. Apparently, I'm not the only one who felt that way. Uh, in an interview with People Magazine back in 2017, Charles Band recalled that Paramount tried to discourage the inclusion of Leech Woman in future Puppet Master installments, as they felt she was just too gross, which led to the creation of a new puppet, Torch, for Puppet Master 2. Although, carefully looking into it, it does seem that Leech Woman sticks around. Which is a good thing, Paramount. Just because something is gross doesn't mean it shouldn't exist and be allowed to puke leeches all over sex-crazed scientists. While I may not feel the puppets have as much personality yet, I do love that they get pissed at Gallagher for insulting them, and I deeply admire how creative the crew was in bringing them to life as killers, like using real hands for Pinhead's punches and multiple animation techniques for Tunneler. This is a film I highly recommend watching the behind-the-scenes footage of, because the way they executed some of these effects is fascinating. Also, I don't know why I neglected to mention this earlier, but the VFX supervisor and one of the puppeteers for Puppet Master was David Allen. So if I haven't made this clear, I'm, I'm a fan of David Allen's work. I think my favorite puppet in terms of overall design right now would have to be Jester. Just think he's a really neat puppet character concept, which is kind of funny because he's like the least violent. <laughs> Most of the SFX makeup in this film doesn't feel quite as balls out as that of demonic toys, but that isn't necessarily a bad thing and it does have its moments. As I said, the severed heads at the foot of Alex's bed, as well as the bodies of the other psychics once they've been killed and posed around the dinner table, it all looks great. And when the puppets turn on Gallagher, proving he wasn't as immortal or powerful as he thought, things get really gross and really violent, which I appreciate. More importantly, the 
tension surrounding the kills and the emotional impact that comes with them are a band apart. Puppet Master is, in my opinion, a much higher quality film across the board than either of the others I've reviewed today. Sergio Silvati's cinematography is excellent, and I really dig some of the sound design, especially during the shots we see from the puppet's POV. I like that they sort of let us know that Blade is kind of like the main puppet by letting us view the world through his eyes at times, and that at the beginning of the movie, when his master's life is in danger, he sounds like he's in distress. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the puppets evolve as characters in this universe, and whether or not they begin to develop stronger personalities uh, independent of those controlling them. As I said, I've been careful not to spoil things for myself, so I don't know quite what to expect, I just know I'm excited. Also, does Leroy ever come back? No, wait, don't tell me. To those of you listening who haven't seen the film, Leroy was Dana's taxidermied dog. She was carrying him around and talking to him throughout the film. And at first, I thought, okay, this has to come up later. And then it kept not coming up, so... Then I thought, all right, this is just a flourish, a quirk for the character. And then, after Alex leaves the inn, at the end of the movie, we see Megan walking up the stairs with Leroy, who becomes animate, letting us know Megan has learned Toulon's method. It's such a fun payoff, possibly one of my favorite things about the movie, and I want to see more of that dog. God damn it. Okay, I just looked it up, and the dog never comes back. Now you just sit down, and you stay like a good boy. All in all, I really enjoy the first Puppet Master. It's a strange and unusual journey into a world of magic and intrigue with entertaining kills, and it's no surprise to me that there are so many movies to come. I wasn't super crazy about Gallagher as a villain. I, I just felt he was a little tiresome, and I found his motivations to be a little broad for my taste. But I love the idea that anyone with this gift can use these puppets, which lends well to a variety of different stories and different villains moving forward. Again, just speculation, but man... I cannot wait to watch the rest of the Puppet Master films. I'm tired of experimenting with silly little wooden puppets. So those were just a few of my thoughts after my first three lessons at Full Moon. Academy. I enjoyed all three of these movies for different reasons and to varying degrees, but I'd have to say my favorite thus far is Demonic Toys. <laughs> Maybe I'll just plow your fucking chicken mobile into the river. How'd you like that? Yes, it is rife with flaws that are not present in Puppet Master. Puppet Master is the superior film in so many ways, and it isn't quite as unapologetically absurd as Bad Channels, but I feel like Demonic Toys is an excellent blend of earnest horror and wacky fun. I greatly enjoyed Judith as a final girl, the film is positively bursting with great one-liners, and the personalities of the toys leave me curious, you know? I want more. I know that these were pretty brief reviews compared to what I normally do, but I had a lot of fun watching these movies, thinking about them, talking about them with you here, and I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to making my way through these franchises. I don't think I'll be talking about every single Full Moon movie that I watch on this journey here on the podcast. I'll likely post most of my thoughts moving forward on my website, finalgirlfriday.net, which is a thing I keep forgetting exists, so this adventure might be a good motivator for me to actually use it. If you've listened this far, I would love to know your thoughts on any or all of these titles. Please send me your opinion opinions and experiences, you can send me a message through the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday. Hit me up on Instagram at MollyOblivion or email me at FinalGirlConfessions at gmail.com. Before I wrap up tonight, I got tons of answers for this week's worst case scenario and I am so excited to read them. <laughs> Thank you.
Worst case scenario is a silly little thing where I pose a hypothetical question relevant to the horror genre on social media and read my favorite responses. This week, I wanted to keep with the theme of demonic toys and puppet masters. So our worst case scenario is your favorite toy has come to life for a killing spree. What's the toy and what is its weapon of choice? Most of this week's answers came from Slasher. And I just want to thank everybody so much. Like, I'm going to thank you again, but like, thank you for all of your answers because they were great. Oh My Guts said, my rotten cauldron keeper I made two Halloweens back, and its weapon of choice is his giant ass ladle. (laughs) This made me realize how rarely we see the ladle used as a weapon in movies, either defensively or offensively, and I'm suddenly very disappointed about that. GoGoHead365 said, Gumby and his weapon of choice is his demonic horse he rides on, Pokey, which is half horse, half werewolf. Oh, the imagery there. Uh, Just can't, can't ever unsee it. He also followed it up with a gift that I can never unsee. Thanks, Gogo. Evil Dave said, well, I guess I'm screwed. My favorite toy was Stretch Armstrong when I was little, and I don't think he needs a weapon. Vlad Romeo said, my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles full-size arcade, and I'll just unplug it. (laughs) That's good. I mean, that's not a good tactic. Timmer, 1979, just said, I'm screwed, and posted a photo of his talking Freddy Krueger doll. It's like the fear demon in Fear Itself, you know, that Halloween episode of Buffy. I am the Dark Lord of Nightmares, the bringer of terror. He... he's so cute. Shamadari Dobby said Raphael from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kills everyone on the block with his sigh, which made me start thinking about how great it would be if we could have, like, you know, a version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Dark, where it's that story retold with the turtles not handling their mutations very well. That's a story I would watch or read. Like, I think that would be really fascinating. The Monster's Bride said, okay, so back in the day, my fave was a roller skating baby doll called Baby Skates. Her weapon of choice is a skate. I looked this toy up and that would be fucking frightening. Let's show them, baby skates. Here comes that pretty little show of baby skates. Washington Horror said my Godzilla figure, its weapon is atomic breath, <laughs> which I still maintain depending on how big he is. You could really just use him to start a much needed fire on cold nights. Although he did say that it was about a foot tall. So yeah, I mean... It's kind of scary. Just keep them away from flammable objects and you should be fine. Gory Rory said my favorite toy when I was very young was quite simply a slinky. So I suppose the slinky would be sentient and envelop its victims, constricting them until they become shredded human slinkies. And the finishing move is just them being pushed down a flight of stairs to see how long they can flop all slinkily. (laughs) That needs to be a movie. Somebody make the killer slinky movie, please. I will promote your crowdfunding efforts. Over on Facebook, Steve said, toss up between my pinhead doll and my alien plushies. He also said, I'm so screwed. I love that the most common reaction to people's answers is just, I'm screwed. (laughs) We would all all be fucked if our toys revolted. Uh, Josiah says, I gotta say my amiibo collection would be like evil Smash Bros. They are only two inches tall, but the swarming kind of freaks me out if I think too hard on it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a lesson that I've learned after years of playing MMOs. Swarms are fucking deadly, man. If you don't get them under control. And Susie said, my slit mouth woman. And she posted a little picture of the vinyl pop. She said her weapon of choice is that mouth. That's fucking unsettling. Please keep that away from me. (laughs) 
So thank you guys so much for your answers. Again, I know that that's kind of like a silly little activity, but I love doing it so much and I love seeing what you guys come up with. It was also very fun uh, getting some insight into what your favorite toys are. I think for me, um, I would be a little conflicted because my favorite toy is my Herbert West action figure and I, I kind of want him to come to life, even if it means he's like chasing after me with a tiny little syringe full of reagent. <laughs> I'd still be the happiest girl in the world. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight, guys. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. I have a couple of exciting things planned for upcoming episodes that I don't want to talk about because I don't want to jinx any of them, but it's it's really, it's exciting. This has been a fun year thus far for Final Girl Friday, and it's been great kind of getting back into it and, and feeling motivated in a way that I just wasn't last year. If you do enjoy this podcast and you would like to contribute financially to its growth, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Final Girl Friday and buy me a movie, but no pressure. I'm just really happy that you're here and that you're listening. Glad you could make it. You know, it just wouldn't be a show without you. Stay safe, stay sane, stay away from baby skates, and as usual, creep it real. Mm -hmm.